0: Audioversity, the voice of Reichman University.
1: I'm close to Lebanon here. I thought maybe it's going to happen. Some Lebanese will come and want to kill me, so they'll kill me, or they won't kill me. And the truth is. From a bigger place, I could look the guy in the eyes and say, look, you can kill me or come and have a cup of tea and we'll talk about it.
0: Welcome to Raw, a podcast where we confront the complexities of war from the inside out. I'm Manuk, a journalist, author, yoga teacher, and meditation practitioner. Raw, or war, spelled backwards, symbolizes how many of us feel in the face of the Israel-Gaza conflict. Exposed, vulnerable, and seeking understanding. Here, we don't just discuss the external battles, but dive deep into our internal struggles, examining how this violence has shaken our very core, Join me in conversations with philosophers, psychologists, and spiritual leaders as we explore how to navigate these painful times with wisdom and resilience, finding guidance for our own paths through this raw, unfiltered world. My guest today is Stephen Fulder, founder and senior teacher of Tovana, the largest meditation society in Israel. Stephen was born in London in 1946, educated at Oxford University, and has a PhD in molecular biology. He's been practicing Buddhism and meditation for 45 years, including years in India. Stephen has been teaching classes, groups, and retreats intensively for 30 years. He's had 16 books published, including the bestseller Erut Bechaye Hayom Yom, or What's Beyond Mindfulness, Waking Up to This Precious Life, and The Five Powers, He's the founder of the Middle Way organization and has been actively engaged in peace and ecological work in the Middle East. He's also one of the founders of the beautiful ecological village of Cleal in the Western Galilee. Stephen, I feel so honored and privileged to be speaking with you today. Thank you so much for being here.
1: I'm also honored and privileged and delighted Um, To be part of this, delighted to have my voice out there and delighted to talk to you.
0: The listeners won't have heard this, but uh, since you're a meditation teacher, I just asked you to guide me through a very short two, three-minute practice, and I'm so glad I did. I came here, you know, as usual, in the rush of the day with the kids and with the traffic and the worry about the news... And the worry that I'm not doing enough, I'm not enough, all these voices inside my head. And you just guided me through such a simple yet powerful practice. And that is why meditation means so much to me and to so many people. So thank you, first of all, for that. I'd like to start with this quote, which I'm sure you know by Viktor Frankl, the Austrian psychiatrist, and he was a Holocaust survivor who wrote Man's Search for Meaning. In his words, between the stimulus and response, there is a space, and in that space lies our freedom and power to choose our responses. In our response lies our growth and our freedom, If I could sum up the impact that mindfulness and meditation has had on my life, I would keep going back to that quote. And I'd like to give you an example from just a few days ago uh, when that space that Viktor Frankl talks about really manifested itself quite powerfully in my life. Uh, I came home uh, after a long day of work, I have three uh, young children, and my eldest, Leo, um, who's eight years old and who is a delightful child was in one of his very, um, combative moods where everything was no. And, uh, I was asking him to go get ready and it was no, and he was getting more and more what I felt was rude and belligerent. And at some point I raised my voice and I said, Leo, you're going to get ready right now for bed. And he took a blanket, uh, and he said, he screamed no, and he put the blanket on my head. And in that moment, my instinctual, primal reaction, you know, and this is, this is quite hard to say, but what I felt was that I wanted to hit him. And I'm so grateful for my meditation practice, because we're not going to go into that, but I have... Like many people, some history of of trauma from my childhood, and um, and perhaps also genetically some disposition to 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 anxiety and fear of being disrespected. And if it had not been for that space, me, you know, a, 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 who I think of as a loving, caring mom might have done something. That would have been completely out of my control. And yet in that moment, I had that space and I realized that Leo was at the end of a very long day, that he'd had a vaccine at school that day. And I kind of gathered myself and I looked at him and I said, Leo, I will not allow you to put a blanket on my head. I'm going to come with you and together we're going to go get ready for bed. And I said that in a way that was authoritative, but not rageful and Something beautiful happened, which is what so often happens when I respond this way to my kids, is they just completely melt. They, 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 I, I feel like there is a gratitude that I didn't lose my temper and that I see them. I see their exhaustion. I see their need to, to, be, to, to have a little tantrum. The reason I'm saying this is because we're here to talk about the war. And on October, on October 7th, what was so felt in my body was that I had no longer any control over my visceral reactions. I lost that space on October 7th, and for the many days that followed that Viktor Frankl talked about, I was completely gripped by terror and uh, by... Uh, probably transgenerational trauma coming from my grandparents in the holocaust and i was terrified and rageful and i felt like a persecuted child and so what i'm what i'm curious because you've been doing this meditation thing for so many more years than i and and you are the you know you are the guru in israel and one of many in the western world How was October 7th for you? And were you able to keep some spaciousness in your body and in your psyche?
1: Yeah, thank you. Uh, Great question and a beautiful little story. We are very contracted when we are faced with um, the threat that it feels very immediate and strong and traumatic. We get very, very contracted and very one, one-tracked. We get reactive and responsive and their space is lost. In my own case, um, on October the 7th, uh, I felt a huge pain. And the pain was palpable, was was touchable. It was as if, there was a huge weight inside and I felt the pain of people who were the young people who were being slaughtered and who had been slaughtered and, and the cruelty. And the, I felt it as a huge pain. What I needed to do is take a couple of days, which I did before I could, t- I could talk to anybody. I took a couple of days of being at home quietly, but I would say, that having years and years of spiritual experience, that was built in. The meditation and not just the meditation, the wisdom and the books I've read and the books I've written, that's built in. So that the trauma, that the the trauma needs to take over, and the way it does that is to reduce the person into a rather small small slice. What stands against being reduced into a reactive, angry, revengeful, uh, um, immediate, violent uh, response, what prevents that is not to forget that we are big people. And for my own personal experience, this is built in. I cannot be anymore in that contracted place. There can be somebody that will come to my door with a gun. And I actually thought maybe it's going to happen from, uh, I'm close to Lebanon here. I thought maybe it's going to happen. Some Lebanese will come and want to kill me. So they'll kill me or they won't kill me. And the truth is from a bigger place, I could look the guy in the eyes and say, look, you can kill me or come and have a cup of tea and we'll talk about it because there there is always another way. And that's Viktor Frankl's uh, comment there. There's always another way. And it depends on us returning to ourselves. So what I was doing um, after the two days when I really felt I had to kind of absorb that, what was happening and feel it and be with the pain in my heart and let, let it be there. I said, now I'm ready to go out and talk to people. And basically what I would talk, tell people and help people in the community is, OK, don't blame yourself for feeling the anger and the trauma and the revenge. Don't add to it blame. But also remember that you're bigger than that. And, and, and look at yourself and say, yes, we have major, major um, a trauma here. But still, we are big people.
0: I wonder if my mother would be okay with me sharing this story. I think she would. She, she was in, um, in Argentina uh, on October the 7th and came and, and went to Paris a few days afterwards. And uh, she, she's a child of, of Holocaust survivors. Um, and when she stepped into her hotel and uh, saw that some of the people working there were, were Arab speaking. She went into a complete panic, which is which is not rational. And she went in her uh, hotel room and she hid inside the closet. She was that terrified. My mother is, is quite theatrical, so there might have been an element of of, of of drama there. But I think there was a real terror a terror of um, a a second Holocaust happening again. And in, in those moments, it is so difficult for anybody maybe who isn't Stephen Fulder to recognize that fear and to remember that we're larger than that. And so I wonder if in these last few weeks, in these last few months, do you find it harder to talk to people about compassion and about common humanity.
1: Absolutely. Um, and it, there's no guarantee you can be practicing 20 years. Um, the fear is such primal. We have it in our biological basis. Fear and and insecurity is fundamental to life. Uh, we're born in a body and what our major concern after that is survival. So never, never mind, you've been doing meditation 10 years uh, in such a situation. The fear is palpable. But what is there is that there's always a question when there's real, when you, when you look at fear as suffering and say, right, what is the actual experience right now? It's fear. And I am afraid, and I have genetic fear, and I have Jewish fear, and I have this fear. Okay, be there with that fear, honestly, at eye level, and then be there with the tendency to build out of that fear another level of reactivity of thoughts. That's a second step. So that the first step is acknowledging fear. And I never say to people, you mustn't, you've been meditating, you shouldn't have fear. What I do say is, okay, you're meditating, look at the fear and watch what we build out of the fear. And this is a voice that is possible. You may not have it so strongly, but it is possible. For example, this woman came to me and said, I feel so good here in Clil and there's olive trees outside and I feel the earth underneath and I walk in the trees and I feel my big spirit there and happy. And then all of a sudden the fear arises and I hear, I see a plane going over an F-16 going over us here in the north. And I hear the booms of the of the artillery, which are not very far away, a few kilometers away. And all of a sudden I feel so contracted. How do I put the two worlds together? And I said, you don't need to try and fit them together. They don't fit together, but be your fully happy big self when you can, and watch the fear coming in as an experience, give it its space, give it its its authenticity, meet it as it is. It doesn't have to undo you. It's an experience, as Etty Hillerson once said. If you give this these feelings the space that they ask for, you are actually still back in life.
0: For those who don't know meditation and mindfulness very well, there is this uh, there is this analogy of the ocean and the waves. That we are the ocean that can carry the various waves of life, the various internal waves of sorrow and grief and rage and anger and joy and happiness and contentment and frustration. And we don't have to be swept up in each wave. We can learn to be the ocean watching the waves come and go. Is that... Is, That's...
1: That's fine. Yeah, that's a good image. <laughs> um, it, it. And of course, if you actually think for a moment, and what's been happening since October the seventh is people have been coming back to themselves, and they are they have returned, and they're beginning to ask questions. And I think the questions are crucial here, because um, like in the in the spiritual tradition, big pain gives you two choices: one is misery and the other is search the narratives on both sides the narratives that are fueled by the insecurity are making sure that another war happens and another war happens and another war happens and that's been the way it's been all these years I, I was here in 1973 at the Yom Kippur War that's 50 years ago I was right in the middle of Tel Aviv when the war broke out in, in nothing has changed We have to find another way, and there are other ways. I've seen minimal, distant dialogues between politicians that anyway, full of suspicion, and they just go back home and say, the others are not listening. I don't see any real dialogue. And yet here in the Galil where I'm living, daily life dialogue is happening, and we are fine with our Arab neighbors and the Druze neighbors, Christians, Muslims, Jews, the city. Together, living together in the Galilee, it's so easy. It's possible, you know. And and, and when I meet my Arab neighbors here, they say the, they agree with with the point that I'm making. It doesn't need you to be a meditation teacher. The narratives are toxic. And the guy that delivered the gas the other day, he said, "My narrative is to say history." is just destructive. What's important is that I get, I have food in my house. My family are okay. I have work and I have a future and I have hope living here in the Galilee with you, with Jews and Arabs and Druze together. And it's daily life and we are fine.
0: For people who are not in this world, um and are faced with a barrage of uh terrifying stories whether it comes from the news or from social media um which is which creates such polarity and we know that social media feeds off uh, people continuing to be in an echo chamber where they just get fed what they want to hear and which confirms their own beliefs and you know I noticed this I did some I I did some uh, experimentation with my social media if I was looking for pro-Palestinian content the next day I was getting a lot of pro-Palestinian content if I was looking for pro-Israeli content which didn't make me feel better it made me feel like I'm validated I'm right um, I, I am persecuted and therefore i'm right in, in feeling that uh that that we 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 are correct in our path um i i just get fed this uh diet of separation what would you say is something that people can do who don't you know practice meditation daily who what is something that they can do in order to first of all, feel more at ease because this is it's it's such a difficult space to be in um, to to consume the news, but then to feel guilty when you don't consume the news?
1: I believe that everybody has a little window and this little window of, you can say a small candle burning in the light that will say, "Wait a minute. What's the food I'm being fed? Maybe they can't say it 100%, but they maybe can say it 10%. What is it I'm being fed with? And is it a diet that agrees with me? And does it give me indigestion? (laughs) So meditation, one of the gifts of meditation is that it helps us to see where our attention is hijacked. And to be able to win back our attention, to say, I want to give my attention to what is nutritious and helpful and wholesome for me and for my family and for my community. So meditation certainly will help. But any but other people who don't meditate can also have that. My grandchildren sometimes come along and say, I can't take all of this stuff. It is so much, I'm getting brainwashed. They, they say it themselves. Um, there's a little voice in us that says, maybe we have to kind of um, ask who is stealing our attention and taking it? And do we have any attention left to be able to look at things differently? And that's a question that we need to ask all the time. What is it that we're feeding?
0: Do you feel there is a moral... Obligation to be aware of all the suffering, and and just speaking from personal experience, um, like I mentioned, I I have three young children. I'm I'm busy. I live in Tel Aviv, so apart from the occasional you know siren uh, in the beginning, um, I can. It is possible for me to live in a way that I go about my daily life. I bring my kids to school, I work, I study, um, I feel joy, I walk in the park, and yet I know that there is, at the same time, so much suffering um, on the part of the families who still have uh, hostages in Gaza, who are worried about... Um, who are worried about them night and day? Who are hearing stories about the uh, unimaginable uh, uh, physical, mental, sexual uh, uh, violence and torture that that they're that they're going through? The families of the soldiers who are um, fighting, and the uh, thousands and thousands of families in Gaza who have um, uh, no homes, who have barely anything to eat, um, who have lost children? Do I have a moral obligation?
1: I think we can change the word moral obligation to moral sensitivity and that to be aware of suffering is certainly crucial for us. We, we cannot shut the door and live in five star hotel and say, I'm shutting the world out. And just simply because, as sensitive, open human beings, it is there. To shut out suffering would be shut ourselves in another kind of prison. But I have to say, this is important in relation to your story of your life in Tel Aviv and my story of my life in Khalil, there is nothing wrong with being happy. We can be happy with our children, with the nature, with our life. I'm very happy. I'm having a really happy life. But at the same time, it isn't at the expense of shutting the door to suffering. So we can actually be with the two voices, with all the... In fact, I would say we need to be happy. We need to be uh, live a full, happy life and be aware of suffering at the same time. There's no point in you, for example, saying, I can't be happy, I have to have a miserable life because of what's happening, the suffering out there. I will give hell to my children and my family and myself and I won't sleep at night and I'll be agitated all day and I'll give myself and everybody a hard time and I'll get sick because of it. There's no point in that. Lead a happy life, but be open to the pain around us and let the pain tell us what to do keep a small flame burning and a small ca- one candle can light up a room that's been dark for a thousand years it we need to keep a small flame burning and so whatever we can do whatever is our circle whatever power we have we all have our, our powers we are Uh, I wouldn't say obliged, but in a natural way, we are called. And I would put it, that language feels better to me. We are, the suffering will call us. We are sensitive human beings. We do need to feel that suffering. We do need to know the pain. And it touches me deeply when I feel, you know, the children in, Gaza and the children and the young people that were killed and are now traumatized Israelis on the other side, they touch me, my heart hurts, but at the same time I have a happy life. But that pain inside me calls me and whatever in a natural way your heart is telling you, you have to go and do it.
0: Your, your description just now just um Reminded me of a, discussion, a description of Leonard Cohen, the singer, uh, by Catherine Ingram after he died. And she said of him, Leonard's special genius was his ability to communicate both the sorrow and the beauty of the world, even in the same sentence. He never looked away from either, not even in his final months when pain racked his body. He had a twinkle in one eye and a tear in the other.
1: Oh, that's absolutely beautiful <laughs> it reminds me of this old uh, from the Hasidim, from the the the, uh, the 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 orthodox tradition um phrase that said every person should have in his right pocket and his left pocket a little note in one pocket says uh, i am nothing i am just dust and ashes and the other pocket it, the note should say i am the universe i am the world i am important (laughs) and i have to say personally um, i live in coexisting points of view that are just as you said i mean I, i support that and i feel that very much in my own life i can cry when i feel the pain of a child a wounded child and and yet i'm laughing at the joy of my life these days, um, never mind the age and the body and the, the Palestinians and the Lebanese over the border, the Hezbollah uh, and the diseases and the, and the viruses and the conflicts. But at the same time, life is so beautiful and precious and and in the moment, um, it's a dance and um, the cells of my body are dancing and my dog is dancing with me outside when we go for walks and the the, the life is also a dance at the same time
0: that's beautiful and I, I i love this this image of a dance and i i actually have been doing quite a lot of dancing with with my children in the last few months i think more than ever before and in a way the 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 deep suffering and horror is calling on us to to dance with tears in our eyes and with gratitude for what we have. And while we know what others have lost, I wonder, how do you live knowing that by the time you're gone, the world may, may continue in this cycle of endless violence? as someone who has lived their whole life trying to wake people up to the sameness and the beauty of all human beings?
1: Um, By not trying to be in control. We're not in control. Things are much bigger than us. Um, One of my granddaughters recently said... um, You know, I'm quite happy, never mind everything that's happening, because life is stronger than us. And life will be there even if the human beings wipe themselves out through global warming. And life will just keep going. And there's something in the big picture which is very supportive, which is we are not in control. I think we have a purpose in life, which is to bring meaning and joy and goodness where we can but to let go of the sense of it has to stop there has to be a change it all has to be, uh, finish I can't do it I can't change the world we're not God so we we offer what we can to the world and let go and go and sleep well at night that's the only thing we can do we are not in control I cannot guarantee anything, either for myself or for my grandchildren or for my children, or I cannot guarantee what will happen tomorrow. But what I can do is, in the moment, the joy of giving and helping and and reducing suffering is in the moment. It's not about trying to control the future. It's in the moment. And the moment is enough. It feels right to live like that. And I think that we have to go back home in a way and say, this is your one day. How are you going to live this one day? And what feels right in this one day? And that's it. And then you go home and sleep well at night.
0: For those of us also who feel so powerless in the larger decision-making of what is happening, what you're talking about, kindness, is so easy to do in our immediate circles. Being kind... To our neighbor and being kind to our family and being kind to people on social media, being kind to the people that we are uh, meeting and who we are connecting with, I believe plants the seeds for them to be kind to others. Um, So that's that's kind of what I'm left with in this great, great difficulty and this, this, this feeling of, that I started with of not good enough because I can't fix this, there is something in every moment which I can fix, which is to smile to the person walking down the street who might be going through tremendous difficulty. Um, and all of us are going through tremendous difficulty these days. And I think that just simple acts of kindness goes such a long way in repairing and healing yeah. what has been broken
1: if you're really deep in a spiritual life and your kindness will go endlessly to the end of the world, but I understand in the human uh, in the human um, humanness of us, our kindness is limited, but our obligation would be. To move it one more step all the time, to move one more circle of kindness, to push the boundary of our kindness one more step and reduce the sense of protection, shield, uh, reactivity, and defensiveness. One more step of kindness wherever we can.
0: Stephen, thank you so much. For speaking with me, for sharing your wisdom, for uh, your beautiful smile, which which people can't see, um, but it, which is full of joy and kindness and compassion and youthfulness um, and gratitude, and which is really contagious. So you have shared your kindness with me, and for that, I'm very grateful. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you. And I really enjoyed it, uh, being with you here.
0: Thank you for listening. This has been Raw. To listen to more of our episodes, you can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you find your podcasts. I'm Anu Glory. Goodbye.